Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the Master Instructor Roundtable. I'm Marty Miller with fellow Master Instructor, Miss Wendy Batts. How are you today? I am good. How are you, Marty? Couldn't be better. I'm Well, I'm excited. We're going to go a little bit different this week. And not only are we going to go over topic, we are going to bring in two of our other Master Instructors to talk about our favorite exercises. We each kind of chose an exercise or a group of exercises that we utilize a lot. Not saying it's the only ones we use, but something that we just want to kind of bring up and talk about why these tend to be in that category of our favorites. I am so excited. These two guys are, you know, I mean, I all, I love all of our master instructors, but these two um, are, you know, they're top of my list as well. And they are going to provide us with some amazing information on theirs. Um, I kind of like the uh, the different exercises that we chose and why. So, um, you know, if we want to go ahead and, and bring them in. Um, we have Mr. Andy Hanley. So hello, Andy. Hi, guys. And How are you doing? Good. And we have Chris Eklund joining us as well. Hello. Um, so, Andy, before we kind of start digging into it, do you want to tell everyone just a little bit about what you do, where you're from? And, well, we know well, you'll pick up his accent, but uh, a little bit about, like, your, your location, um, what who you kind of deal with more on the the client base level, and then Chris will, will shoot it over to you after that. Of course. Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, delighted to be on here. So um, Andy Hanley based here in sunny South Florida. Uh, I own a training facility called the High Performance, which is more sports performance based. So we deal um, extensively with elite level athletes as well as youth development athletes. I've got another facility in Fort Lauderdale, Body Fit Training, where it's geared more around the general population and more of a group setting. Um, so, yeah, I get the joys of working with athletes and clients across a multitude of spectrums in different facilities. So it definitely scratches my itch from a programming and coaching perspective. Awesome. All right, Chris, you're up. Beckland here, and um, I live in uh, Santa Barbara, California, so also relatively uh, sunny, but maybe not as warm as Andy's uh, neck of the woods. Uh, I own a facility here uh, called Prevail Conditioning Performance Center, and similar to Andy's situation, we do uh, athletes in, in performance as well as fitness post-rehab, but we do it all in one place. Uh, so we just have the one facility, and we're kind of the, the, uh, the 8 to 88-year-old clients, so we deal with the full spectrum of age. Uh, and I'd say probably about 70% of our clients right now are more on the fitness end. We've got about 30% of our clients are the athlete anywhere from uh, middle school to kind of the adult athlete playing in the rec leagues as well. Um, so most of my time these days is actually spent uh, doing the, the business end of the spectrum. But uh, uh, one one to three hours a day, I'm still able to keep my hands in the training a little bit as well. Awesome. All right. So let's let's just dive in. And, um, you know, I know, Marty, I don't know if you're seeing how you and I are, you know, we're on these every week and we get to interact with some amazing people that that watch and listen to our webinar. Um, I don't know if you uh, want of you, Marty, start us off and tell us your favorite exercise and why. OK, I, I was going to go ladies first, but I will uh, take the well, honor and move on here. <laughs> so, you know, I was going to be polite and let you go, but oh, she kicks it over to me. So when we were looking at this, you know, I knew we were going to cover some great exercise with my other three colleagues. So I want to say, okay, what can I talk about that I utilize a lot, but maybe we don't talk about in our coursework and maybe can bring light to, to a different type of exercise that some people may uh, kind of skip past. 
So one of my favorites, the one that I'm going to talk about is just all the different carries, whether it's your traditional farmer's carry, whether it's a one-arm carry, whether it's I use sandbags, I'll use a bottom-up kettlebell carry, you know, one-arm. I just like the fact that if I can get somebody dialed in with their five kinetic chain checkpoints, have them do a lot of these different variations of carries, I look at it as a, you know, dynamic plank. I have somebody standing upright, their posture is engaged. They are loading however I choose to do it. And we can talk about that here in a bit. But I like the fact that they are doing the transitional plank as they walk. I make sure they have good gait. I make sure they get good and triple extension. I'm not just doing these carries where I'm like, hey, pick up a heavy object and see if you can get it to the other side of the room. It goes right back to everything we teach with NASM. It has to be done right. It has to be done exactly we would want with the execution of the five kinetic chain checkpoints. So you can use it as a metabolic conditioning, but I really, really like it in a warm up as I'm progressing to phases of training where I'm going to be doing multi-joint exercises and I'm expecting their body to be engaged all together. So I like it. It's something that I can come up with a lot of different variations to it. And I think the client, you know, can see the carryover, no pun intended, to their everyday life. So (laughs) it's just one of those things that... I like to get creative with it. And also even from like grip strength standpoint, you know, hitting oversized, um, you know, dumbbells, I wrap it with uh, towels. So the grip is a little bit thicker. So there's a lot of cool things I can do with it. And again, I'll do it bilateral, unilateral, and just, you know, I'll even have them doing retro uh, carries backwards. So just a lot of cool and fun stuff that you can do with it. Awesome. Good choice. Andy, do you and, and Chris use those often? Yes. Yeah. And I actually quite like how Marty referred to the fact that you use it in your warm up sometimes because they, they can be great tools to provide early context to what you're going to be doing for the session. Um, I, I mean, from a strength perspective, yeah, grip is it's obviously fundamental, especially when you're working with a, a more athletic population. But it's the isometric nature of the carries that I like where you can pre-position these guys in certain joint angles, joint positions, be it rack position, overhead position. And then have them doing it through these different transitional patterns. Um, it does drive a good strength and meta- metabolic effect. So in terms of bang for your buck activities, they're definitely in my time, my top five. So when I saw Marty pick this as one of his favorite exercises, yeah, I'm I'm completely in agreement with you. Heavily utilized in my facilities. It makes me feel good that you checked that box and approve it. You know, <laughs> you know that was the first box I went. To. I strive for that. I strive for that. I want that. <laughs> what about you, Chris? Yeah, I would have to say it's something that we use quite a bit as well. Um, so I'd agree that this is probably one of our favorites. I think, um, you know, over the course of the years, you know, we learned a million different ways to do planks and, and how we could um, vary those and try to try to get them to the point of uh, having some application of people getting on their feet. But I think when <clears throat> the carry kind of came across our vision and we realized um, this is this was such a simple solution for us to figure out how to challenge people's postural strength, endurance, whatever you want to call it, um, and get them on their feet and get them moving. So some kind of a transitional core pattern that was actually able to allow us to to get people on their feet and moving in the directions that potentially they're either moving in their sport um, or, or just in general daily life. Um, and then all, all of the other things that the guys have mentioned, the benefits of it. So uh, like it for all of those reasons, as well as it's one of those patterns which you know, I'm sure we'll come up as we go along, but it's one of those patterns that it's hard to do them really wrong. It's hard to 
it's hard to get hurt doing them. I mean, obviously you can in anything that you do, but patterns that are relatively self-limiting and make it difficult to get hurt uh, and still provide a, a, a great benefit are some of my favorites. So this would fit into that category. And, and Wendy, there's one other thing I could put in there. We talked about the carry, but it's how do you load the carry and unload the carry? So the carry starts for me is as you're going to pick up the load, whatever that's going to be. So if we've got dumbbells on the floor, sandbag on the floor, we don't start with their form and technique once they get in position. Sometimes you're grabbing dumbbells and it's, you know, an elevated position, things like that. But and then also when the, the carry is over, I'm not expecting things just to collapse to the ground when they let go of the weight. So it's execute the lift into the carry properly, do the carry properly, and then lower that weight. You know, I've always, uh, even my high school coach back in the day said, if you're strong enough to pick it up, you're strong enough to set it back down. Obviously there's times where we do drop weights on purpose, but the point is let's not just focus on the carry distance. Let's focus on how we load it to how we unload that carry. Absolutely. Great points. Yeah. I don't really have anything to add to that other than I also use them. Um, I use them with everyone. I think uh, to what Chris's point on a progression standpoint from going from, you know, uh, being on the ground, standing up, um, plus the core demand. I mean, obviously, this is also a progression. So, you know, I think if if you really spend some time and if you haven't been utilizing them in their, your program, it is something that I think could be super beneficial for anyone as long as they can execute it in the five kinetic chain checkpoints and uh and you know obviously there's no compensation then i mean anything that follows those guidelines to me could con be considered a really good exercise so yeah um and sorry, sorry to jump in sure. uh, one the, i mean i really liked how chris touched on the point of specificity there because that's important but it's, it's also just a fun exercise for clients it's engaging mm -hmm. yes as coaches we get creative liberty in terms of how we want to load these carries and these patterns but for a client to be able to test their functional strength for time or distance, as Chris said, in a safe manner is also very powerful. So that's something that we play with all the time um, because he's right. It is very difficult to get hurt. Once you fail or you get to fatigue, you simply put the, the weights down. So just from a testing standpoint too, that might be testing something different to your conventional one RMs and, and you know, your, your, your power output. I think it's a really good test of strength indoors. So just wanted to add that in there as well. Absolutely. All right, Chris, why don't you why don't you lead us into the next one? Why don't you tell us uh, what was your favorite and why? Happy to do that. Uh, so I have an extremely difficult time picking favorites. I'm not good at, at picking favorites in anything. So I have a couple favorites, uh, a personal favorite that I like to do for um, myself, and then one that I would say is probably more on the client end of the spectrum. So I'll, I'll go the end of the, the client spectrum first, and then if you guys want to come back to the other, we can. But um, the, uh, the the personal one is uh, hand cleans, so I'll kind of leave that, and then I'll come back to the client one. So the the one that I like the most for clients um, is goblet squat variations. So similar to what Marty said, not just goblet squats, but but the variations that we can do from that position. So whether it's bilateral or unilateral, um, whether it's um, uh, simple sagittal plane stuff if it's split squat if it's if it's lateral squat if it's if it's rotational or transverse um, if it's transitioning from point a to point b rear foot elevated so all of those different variations of that particular pattern um, are ones that i like and and i'll come right back to the you know the, the point that i made earlier <clears throat> it's a it's a pattern that i think is um, is extremely important from a functional standpoint so for the average joe 
or Jane, uh, as well as for the athletic population. So being able to squat well, um, especially unilaterally, if, if you're um, an athlete, being able to squat well um, and with some load and you know potentially with some speed is an important um, facet of athletics and, and life. And it's one of those patterns that it's just hard to get hurt doing. It's it's relatively self-limiting. I mean, once you can't hold that weight up, once you can't kind of hold position, you know, more than likely your arms are going to fail before a spine fails. You know, if you even if you're doing a, a bilateral version of it, and so for for clients and, and athletes to be able to feel like they can get a lot of good work, which I find more and more over the years is true. People want when they when they come into train or when they're working with a trainer, they want to feel like they worked hard and they got a good training session and, and maybe got their butt kicked a little bit. And, and it's difficult. Um, something that we say oftentimes is very difficult to be able to get good work out of clients or people without hurting them. It's, it's difficult to train people hard and safely at the same time. Um, it's very easy to push people hard, but it's difficult to do that well. And so it's a pattern that, that fits into that category for me. So it checks a lot of those boxes. We can do a lot of different things. It's functional. It's hard to get hurt. Um, uh, yeah, so that's the spiel. That's, that's why. So, Chris, I have a question for those. Um, we have a lot of new trainers that join into our roundtables. And so could you kind of explain a little bit about I mean, obviously, the carries are pretty, pretty easy for people to understand. But if they're new to understanding what a goblet squat is, could you kind of walk us through like the setup, how you have your individuals kind of perform them to start? And then maybe what the difference is between a goblet squat and like, let's say, you know, a, a squat with a, like a. I don't know, like a, a front squat. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so goblet squat, um, maybe I'll just give some, some basics here. Goblet squat is, is a commonly used name for a version of a front loaded squat. So there's a lot of different ways you can, can load a squat. Putting weight in front of the body is, is one of the, the methods that uh, you can load a squat. Um, whether you do it with a bar or a sandbag, a viper, or a, um, uh, uh, water weights um, or kettlebells or, or, or dumbbells. Typically speaking, a goblet squat is done with uh, either a kettlebell or, or dumbbell. And uh, from my understanding, you guys correct me if I'm wrong on this one, but, and I can't remember where the, where the term came from, If who, who originally coined it, if it was Dan John or somebody else, or it's been around forever, I don't know. But essentially, it's called a goblet squat because it looks like you're, you're holding a big goblet or a big wine goblet um, in front of you, right? So whether you're holding a, a kettlebell, right? If you're holding the kind of the, the bell or the ball of the, the, the kettlebell, uh, you know, it might look like this. Or if you're holding the, you know, the handles of the kettlebell, it's going to look more like this. Or if you're holding a dumbbell, obviously, it's going to look a little bit more like this. But the, the point is that that load is in front, right? You're holding it in your hand. So it's not racked, whereas a front uh, barbell squat might be loaded across the shoulders, and he's sitting a little bit more on the shoulders, you're actually holding a significant portion of that load um, in your arms, though it's very close to your body. Um, so your, your arms, uh, your, your scaps, your upper back are, are doing quite a bit to contribute to the stability in holding that, that thing in place. 
Um, as far as the setup goes, that, that's the generic setup positionally, right? It's very close to you. We, we traditionally teach it as, you know, if it's a kettlebell, we, we typically hold um, the handles uh, and then pull that bell in as close as we can to us and pinch the elbows in. If it's a dumbbell, you're going to turn that dumbbell on end typically and hold one end of that dumbbell and then squeeze the other end of that dumbbell with the forearms. Again, really to try to pack the shoulders in, create some tension in your lats, uh, pull it in tight and help develop some stability in the shoulders and the, and the torso. And then beyond that, you know, depending upon what kind of squat you're doing, um, is going to vary the setup. So it's a bilateral squat, right? We're going to be somewhere probably around hip shoulder width, um, with maybe toed out slightly split squat, right? We're going to have one forward, one back lunging variations, et cetera. So that's, that's a little bit of the background Did I answer your question, Wendy. Oh, absolutely. And I think, uh, I think the listeners will appreciate that. And for those of you guys just joining in, we're at the Master Instructor Roundtable with Marty and Miller and I, and we have two special guests, Miss Andy Hanley and Chris Eklund, and we're just discussing some of our favorite exercises and why. So before I go, um, Mr. Andy, why don't you um, enlighten us on your favorite and then kind of uh, tell us the reasons why, and then we'll go into some more uh, questions that people may have between any of ours at the very end. Yeah, I mean, I just want to kind of follow up there by saying I think Chris has done a great job of presenting the goblet squat there and all of its wonder and functionality. I mean, a truly good exercise. It's comfortable. It can be variably loaded. It's a really good teaching tool to introduce guys to squatting in a safe manner. So um, kudos to you, Chris. Very well done, mate. My favorite exercise is more of a collective group, and it's basically jumping. Um, you know, I, I really don't feel jump training and jumping is utilized as well as it could be or as much as it should be um, with clients across all spectrums, being the athletic population, your general population, your, your more kind of senior adults. Um, and we can get into the programming side of things because um, oftentimes I think it's one of those things that is just poorly programmed and kind of misunderstood in terms of its application. I jotted down a few quick notes why I love jumping, multi-joint. Um, so obviously we're using a lot of the joints we get to move through triple flexion into triple extension. It can be omnidirectional, so we can actually program this through different patterns or different paths. So whether it's frontal plane, sagittal plane, transverse plane jumps, in terms of the orientation, depending on how we bias the exercise, whether it's going to be more vertical displacement or horizontal, we can actually bias and target different muscle groups. Depending on what strength qualities that we wanted to train with our jump, uh, we know we can do starting or explosive strength if we have guys moving from a non-counter-moving -counter position whether we wanted to do reversal strength, which is more dynamic, whether some stretch reflex, whether we wanted to program some reactive strength, which is going to be more impact where we're jumping from an object. Um, and then obviously just the different loading options and how we can load these jumps. So I think once we get a good understanding and once coaches can really understand the benefits behind jump training and how we can use this exercise and manipulate the variables to get different training outcomes, I really feel like people would use it um, an awful lot more. I mean, we use it for um, just simple stuff like rope or jump or uh, jump rope rather, ankle stiffness, rhythm and timing. Sometimes you can program it for um, for extensive work for metabolic conditioning. Um, you can do it for legitimate power training. Some sort of jump or jump training when loaded can actually build strength qualities. Um, so I really think it's a very versatile tool to have in your toolbox. I love the fact that it can be done anywhere truthfully with anyone if you set the parameters 
And that's the benefit of jumping two boxes where we can actually reduce the eccentric demand on these exercises to lower the impact on certain clients. Um, so that, that's why it would fall into my kind of favorite category, jump training. I like to incorporate it in people's programs as soon as possible because it does touch on a lot of the same elements of our hinge patterns and our folding squat patterns um, that we're coaching out the gate after our assessments. Um, so yeah, there's my kind of quick two cents on the power of jump training and how best they can be utilized for everybody. So Andy, before we go um, into mine, um, I know there's going to be a question that'll probably pop up, but you know, obviously jumping, you know, people automatically think explosive jumps. So when you say that you try to program it very quickly um, into your, your programs with your clients, um, how do you do that for someone um, that's maybe brand new to working out or one of your newer ones? Like what is your progression to get them really working so much on that two box deceleration? Precisely. So for me, jump, jump training, when I talk about rhythm and timing, it's just improving someone's movement competency. So yeah, we it doesn't have to be these maximum effort jumps that we're seeing on YouTube and that's kind of glorified in the Instagram world. Um, low level jump training, rope training is, for me, it's what we call extensive. It's low intensity where we kind of extend the durations where it's getting people comfortable just leaving and finding the ground. So a jump, whether it's a 40 inch jump or it's a single inch jump or it's a step off a two inch box, whatever that looks like for your client, I just like to introduce that in the program early because it does build confidence and it's something that you can quantifiably show progress with. Um, and for me, clients enjoy that. They want to come in. They want to feel like they're making progress. They want to feel like they can move and they've got that raw athleticism. Uh, and for me, it's just a great segue into some of our higher intensive stuff that we want to get to down the road, but we're just setting that foundation as early and safely as possible. Wendy, if I can jump in on one thing, Ed thought Andy did an incredible job and I've seen him do his work. So for anyone that's watching, when we look at this jump training, it's on a spectrum of what the person's ability is. If mm -hmm. you really understand how Andy teaches in these patterns, at some point, pretty much everybody that you train will probably have the ability to do some level of it. And you know, for anybody that trains that more senior population, it is important to do some level of power training. And Andy can give you the specifics because that's one of the things they lose the fastest so I've actually used jump training. Now, when I say that, don't think the highest level jump that maybe you can do. It's just, can they load quickly that triple flexion, triple extension as actually injury prevention? Because uh -huh. if they go out and put themselves in that situation and they've never been able to reduce that speed, that's where trouble comes in. And I had a brother-in-law who was in his 40s who hadn't trained in a long time, went to do something quickly and blew an Achilles, right? So this is uh, that's why I was so glad Andy was going to talk about this because it is essential for everyday life to have some ability to accelerate and decelerate to actually not hurt yourself at some point in your life. No, and that's the key. It is, it, it is protective and it, and for me, it's both while people think jump training is all about force production. For me, we always start with force absorption and your ability just to control your body weight in space. Um, so yeah, jump training. Well, I mean, and that's a very good point. I mean, oftentimes people think about it. They think high end, high level, high, high threshold stuff. When in reality, we can tailor that right back down to meet anybody's needs and just mm -hmm. establish a good baseline um, where we teach them, we give them the basic competencies just to control their body and space. Mm -hmm. 
And I think too, it's important to say, you know, obviously, you know, to, to your, all of what we've all been discussing, um, especially before we get to mine, you know, I think we, it's important to think, you know, obviously we're trying to cue them out of compensations. We're trying to look at what their ability is. And so if their ability isn't able at this, at this point in time, when you have a client, no matter what age they are, um, whether they're coming out of post-op or whether you're working on, on, you know, certain things. I mean, we've discussed this in previous uh, roundtables that, you know, even if you have someone go through the mechanics of a jump, but only come up on their tiptoes and never leave the ground to start. So they're still working into triple extension, triple flexion, and adding a little bit of speed without adding the any kind of, of leaving the, the ground. And at that point, I think that's important because mm -hmm. you need that triple extensions, triple flexion to walk. And then to everyone's point, speed things up. These are activities of daily living. And so immediately when people think, like you said, multiple times, jump training, we're, we're, we're going automatically to explosive versus the mechanical positioning of a jump and execution um, on a progressive level. I think that's that's really important. To and I think also is we're not leaving out any phases of training and we're not leaving out any portions of the model. We're just kind of highlighting one little nugget of mm -hmm. something that we want to highlight on the value of it. So regardless of any of our exercises, we're doing the assessments, we're getting the clearance, we're putting them through the entire model. And now we're just kind of highlighting one of those pieces that we really like just to bring to life. So yeah. it's, you know, we're, we're definitely not just jumping, no pun intended, into any of these portions without <laughs> the entire process. Matt, you're two for two now. You've carried weight and you're jumping into. I, I mean, I, Andy, ask Wendy. Points. This is what I do every week. This is every <laughs> week, Andy. I've got to listen to this every week. So, Chris, before I go, um, do you you use jump training, I'm sure, uh, a lot in, in with your, your clientele as well, right? Yeah, we love jump training. And I think you guys have mentioned a lot of, of good points. Um, <clears throat> I think it's frequently misunderstood that that the bar is up here. You've got to be able to do this kind of jumping. But the reality is, is there's there's many levels, many ways that you can progress it. And I think that <clears throat> it as um, as Andy mentioned, it's so important for a huge variety of populations. I think, um, you know, even as we think about doing SAQ stuff or, you know, getting people in, in a ladder or teaching them how to, how to be more agile, you know, if we think about kid population or um, seniors population, teaching them how to change directions, how to be reactive, um, whether it's on kind of the, the jump end of the spectrum or just their ability to stop and change direction, it is a, um, uh, an, an injury reducer um, in keeping people out of trouble. And it was such a frustration of mine for years that the textbooks were just pushing the idea that you can't do jump training or you, you can't do SAQ stuff with, with youth or um, with your older populations. And, and I think at the time, maybe our understanding of it was, well, well yeah, we're not going to be doing depth jumps, you know, with these populations necessarily. But um, but we've got to teach them how to absorb, as Andy mentioned. We've got to teach them how to change directions. We want to, we want to continue to uh, improve um, power production or, or, or at least, you know, um, minimize the drop off, as, as Marty was talking about there for our older populations and allow them to be able to, um, to have longevity in front of life and, 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 and be active and avoid some of the injuries and then and teaching kids how to play better. I mean, kids are jumping off of playgrounds and landing. They're doing depth jumps on their own. So if we can teach them how to absorb force and harness that so that, you know, as time goes on, they have the physiological capability to do some of these higher level things. Great. We've, we've already developed all the fundamentals and then 
uh, and then we can express that a little bit more once you know tissues and hormones and all of those things are, are in place for us to do that. But but yeah, we love them, um, progressing them, and, and all the different variations that Andy has spoken of. Absolutely, and I think it's also important to to say that you know when we're talking about our favorites. We're talking about our favorites. We're not saying that this is going to be utilized with every single individual that walks in and that this is our specific go-to. These are the ones that we either personally enjoy doing or we know that our clients personally enjoy doing as well. Um, and so, you know, when, and I think Marty said it, we never throw the model out the door. We always are working on correcting compensation patterns, whether we're foam rolling and, and lengthening areas that are overactive, we're going through proper activation before we start doing some of these, these um, you know, multi-joint or more advanced exercises. And I want to preface that because what I'm getting ready to show you guys is for an, a very advanced client. Okay. So I'm going to say that again, a very advanced client. This is something that I would not do right off the bat with a senior, a youth, with anyone, unless they had worked their way up safely, effectively, and efficiently to possibly my power phase. Um, however, even in the strength phases, I could start um, you know, maybe incorporating this together, but not as explosive as you may see. Um, what I'm talking about in my favorite that I am going to discuss is something called a leg circuit. And those of you guys that have joined us in the past have heard me talk about them. Um, some people have asked me to put it on Instagram, which I have, but a leg circuit or like the way that, um, that I perform them is uh, there's four exercises that I'll discuss that go back to back. And you're having your client do them as fast as they can control. It doesn't mean as fast as possible. Always looking at, obviously, um, the five kinetic chain checkpoints and making sure that they are going through the right movement patterns. Because as we've talked about, having the program of teaching the right movement patterns in your brain is going to lead to, to better execution long term. So the four exercises that I, I'm going to talk about, keep in mind before I put them together as a combo and before I add speed and, and um, power behind it, I would make sure that my client could execute all four of these correctly, um, whether we're in stabilization, whether we're in strength or whether we're in power before I started to put this together. And what a leg circuit, the reason why I love them is because they're unbelievable. And I usually talk about it as a metabolic finisher because um, it's going to focus on strength and power endurance. And it's obviously going to lead to metabolic gains. And it actually works your leg muscles, every one of your leg muscles, as well as your core strength. So you've got to make sure that you have the ability to perform these before you do them together. And um and like I said, you know, my mentor used to do this. I've done this with all of my professional athletes when we've worked our way up. But usually when I program them into my, my programs themselves is I have them execute all of their core balance and, and, and plyos. They have done their resistance exercises. And these are, quote, the finishers of the day. So whatever they have left in the tank, I use these to make sure that when they're walking out, they're almost on empty. Um, however, Again, only if, if they're ready for something like this. So I just want to be very, um, very clear. And so I actually have a video of, of, um, of this leg circuit that, that in a second we're going to show you. But what the purpose of it is, is you're doing 20 prisoner squats. And the prisoner squats that I have my clients perform is when they go down into a squat with their hands uh, behind their head, they come up onto their tiptoes as fast as they can control. 
And without taking a break, they immediately go into alternating lunges. And then they do those for 20, so 10 on each leg. And then without taking a break, they immediately do a power step up, again for 20, so 10 on each leg. And then they step away and do 10 tuck jumps. Again, no break in between, as fast as they can control, but only for advanced clients would I have someone do this. Now, another thing is you can do them in all three planes of motion. So please keep that in mind as well. We're gonna show you the sagittal plane. And I have to tell you this up front because while the video is playing, I can't talk over the video. So it's gonna be about a 90 second video that I want you guys to watch. Um, this is one of my MBA players that has agreed to allow us to use the video. So just sit back and watch for 90 seconds. And then after that, you can hammer me with any questions you have. So that is a leg circuit for you. Um, <laughs> again, remember this is for an MBA client. So you can see the importance of being able to jump and you know work on deceleration as well as single leg power, uh, different types of uh, power um, on one leg versus the other. And then again, we do these usually in all three planes. Comments, concerns? <laughs> Do you guys use them? Well, are you waiting for us to chime in there? Sure. Uh, first, first of all, good job on the video production. Uh, <laughs> as Marty was saying before the cameras went live, we feel a little bit duped that we didn't get to produce our own videos. But nonetheless, uh, yeah, it was really good to have a visual explanation of what you were discussing earlier. I like it. I mean, yeah, you got to make sure that it's in alignment with your client's current needs and abilities. Um, obviously, he's a highly conditioned, highly capable uh highly functioning athlete so that's right in alignment with him um i like the fact that you program it with different patterns ground-based triple extension you got some deceleration work in there as you said unilateral um power as well as you know bilateral reactive strength so i love it i might steal it myself and use it use it in my own programming tomorrow <laughs> they're the way to go they're super fun <laughs>
Andy, the only thing better, I think, would be when Wendy's on video doing it. I mean, because this goes oh. back over a year now. <laughs> Everybody that continues to watch us continues to ask her to do it. And I noticed she uh -huh. – I'm just saying, Ooh. you guys are, you know, just, just saying. <laughs> well, believe it or not, I actually enjoy these. I, I picked this up. This is something I did not come up with. Actually, my mentor, Dr. Mike Clark, was a big fan of the leg circuits. And so as we completed a performance, um, a PES uh, type workout with some of our professional athletes, this was uh, usually the finishers that we did with these individuals. And I know there was a question that came through about these. Um, at what point do you consider participant you know, as advanced to do something like this. And just to reiterate, I would make sure that they could, you know, they could with perfect form could do a prisoner squat for, you know, the reps or whatever phase of training I was in. And then the same thing with lunges, the same thing with the power step ups. And then again, as well as the tuck jumps, because remember, even as we're going through the model, if you do, let's say tuck jumps and, and, and strength, we're doing them for repetitive motions. Same thing with power step ups. So there's like, you know, Andy has mentioned, it's all about the rhythm before you get to an explosive side. So I would make sure that I would, I, that my client could perform these before I actually put it together as a combo and did it as a as a metabolic finisher plus um it really by the time you get to the tuck jumps if you guys have never done them you're you're pretty spent by the time you hit five and you're literally thinking to yourself i don't know if i can do 10 until you start to do them often so definitely want to make sure it's safe for your client but on an execution side you definitely want to make sure that they can do all of the movements before you put them into a a um, higher speed type of circuit such as that and then I just got a question regarding the programming on that, Wendy. Mm -hmm. Do you always do you always do it for reps, or would you assign certain time limits per exercise based on you know the metabolic outcome you were you were chasing? Um, I usually do them for reps, uh, and and again the twenty you know twenty 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 ten was just something that uh, Dr. Clark said, hey, this is how we do them here. This is the mm -hmm. reason why. But also, too, you want to think about repetitive movements. And another question was like, how many how many reps do you do? You could, and I've done this as well. I know that I have a client that's on here too. And and you could do your resistance training and, and then finish with a leg circuit. Now with this individual, I actually have him go do a vertical load. He does this for reps because I want him to be explosive as he can. And it's really not to try to exhaust someone. It's really to try to execute it with ideal form, but to increase power production. And then I put him on a sled. So um, because he has to be able to play so many minutes, you know, you know, so many minutes per game. And, um, and we're really trying to work on his endurance. However, I would never do that with one of my other clients that came in unless they had some outcome and purpose of me pr programming that way. Um, if I wanted to do the entire workout and before they left, I may have them do one of those leg circuits, take, you know, anywhere from 60 seconds of rest, and then we repeat it maybe in a different plane. And so same four movements, but in different planes. Mm -hmm. And um, and then they could also do it in transverse, but just start with one. And then at that point, you program it accordingly, just like you do with any other exercise. Beautiful. Nice. I'll, I'll chime in there a little bit as well, Wendy. I wasn't exactly sure how you use these. So it was interesting to hear that you typically use them a little bit more potentially on the, uh, the conditioning end of the spectrum. And I thought um, that was a... 
a great way to use them. So I think one of the things that we struggled for years with in, you know, in performance enhancement, the performance enhancement industry was, was the conditioning aspect of working with clients. You know, so, so long we were kind of stuck in the long, slow distance and putting people on a track and having them turn left. And in the reality of the sporting world is that just never happens unless you're, you know, a track athlete. And, and so learning different, different methods, different ways to be able to um, challenge athletes in the time frames, the rep range, rep ranges, the the movement patterns that they're going to encounter in the sport, whether they be, you know, directionally or even some of the the specific um, jump patterns that they may encounter, you know, in a play, you know, in in 20, 30, uh, you know, 40, 50 second um, sequence of, of back and forth in the game, and being able to deal with some of those um, fatigue factors, still be able to perform, decelerate, accelerate, jump, rebound, cut all of those things and work a little bit deeper and deeper into fatigue and be able to, to hold positions and uh, postures throughout. So I enjoy that aspect of, of, of how you use this and um, think that that has a lot of good application for uh, conditioning for athletes in general. So definitely like that, but also obviously could be used just in, like you said, just in doing some general um, strength training just for some variability of pattern and plane. Mm. Yeah, Chris, I was going to say too, like a lot of times when you're following the model, we do these things towards the beginning of the workout and there's specific reasons, but towards the end of the workout, when appropriate under the supervision of Wendy or people that understand what to look for, I love to see what happens in fatigue, right? Because, you know, a lot of times people do metabolic conditioning and the form goes out the window, but there's a story to be told behind that. It's like, what's going to happen when fatigue's there? Are they going to break down? And we know as an athletic trainer and all of you guys know this is that's when the injuries are going to occur. It's not going to occur, generally speaking, when they're fresh. Once that form and technique breaks down under metabolic stress, higher chance of injury. So really, that it's a great way to kind of finish the workout to see what do they have left in the tank and can they still maintain that form and technique and the mental acuity to watch their form and technique and auto-correct when the metabolic conditioning comes in. Because that's what a lot of times with the athletes I've trained is, hey, focus, you're, you're fatiguing you got to dial into your form and technique even more now. This is where you have to make those corrections because this is what's going to happen in real life or, or the game. And I think that's an important part. And that's a big, big reason of why we actually did this was because, you know, um, the first season I, I was not his trainer. And so he came back and that was one of his main complaints is like when he was actually hitting third quarter, he was exhausted. And I mean, he had had a really good trainer, his, you know, his alignment, everything was great, but he just didn't have the endurance. And so, you know, he had been running suicides and running on a treadmill and doing different types of conditioning, but he never did it this way. And so after his second season, when he came back, he was like, we're doing this every year. And so, um, and it's stuff that he still can do. And again, you can see it's minimal equipment. So as he's doing things and whether he's traveling or on the road, these are different types of things that he knows is super beneficial for him to keep him kind of above and beyond some of these others that do. Because again, as Marty stated, injuries occur when people get tired. And so I make them tired on purpose. And I want to see what happens under fatigue because it, the more that we make them tired, the more we're building up their endurance and their power production. So therefore, when they're in a game, it's a piece of cake. And he literally walks laps over a lot of these individuals because he's not exhausted. So just want yeah. to point that out. No, and, and <laughs> uh, gonna, yeah. And I'd like to just piggyback off Chris there really quick because I think he made a great point talking about, you know, uh, 
dealing with fatigue factors. I mean, that's when we talk about conditioning. Yes, we've got metabolic conditioning. We need to make sure that our athletes and clients have the capacity to deliver the energy required for certain, you know, sports and movements. But localizing stress in that manner in the legs is building a tissue tolerance that is a different sort of conditioning. Uh, and it's just good that you can take that and, and, you know, combine the best of both worlds. So I just want to kind of shine a light on that really quick, that um, it's, it's a very clever way to get your metabolic conditioning in while ticking a few other boxes. Um, did you guys get that? It's, it's actually recorded. I'm very clever, very clever. way. <laughs> <laughs> so before we start taking questions, I just want to, again, those of you guys joining in, want to say thanks for being a part of our Master Instructor Roundtable with Marty Miller and I. We have two amazing guests. We have Mr. Andy Hanley as well as Chris Eklund joining us. Um, and so I am going to, uh, before we continue just to talk over everyone, um, let's open it up to some questions. Um, let's see. Andy, uh, also on recording is that you're awesome. So just come back to that if ever needed. Thank you. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> you guys are amazing. I, I love this group. So um, there's a question, Marty, that's actually for you from Chris. Cool. And mm -hmm. it was um, saying, when you say carries, you mean car uh, farmer walks as well? Yeah, that would fall into the carry category for me. Carrying is anything where I'm doing transitional gait patterns and I'm loading something. Now, take it back to all the way back to the basics. I have had clients where I can't load them yet and I'm just working on their gate, right? But I'm getting them in their five connect chain checkpoints. I'm having them move from, you know, the distance A to distance B. And then eventually you can load that. So farmer carries is, is a very easy way to describe what we're doing. People have the dumbbells or whatever they're using, sandbags on both sides. But I like to get creative. One of my favorites is the uh, bottom-up kettlebell unilateral carry where I'm at the 90-90 position and can they carry a kettlebell without them, you know, doing that kind of uh, windshield wiper or I'm the little teapot, you know, I've heard Wendy say it where they're leaning to one side or the other. A lot of different ways you can do carries. Sandbags are great as well. You can have, I, I generally won't load their spine with it. I'll have them hold on to something, but just a lot of fun ways to get creative with the carry. Awesome. And then we got another question. Actually, this one is for Andy. Um, what sort of reps and sets for jumping do you do in a workout? Awful answer. <laughs> it depends. Uh, again, wh who am I working with? What is their current fitness level? What are the outcome goals of that session? What part of the model are we in? Um, so it's really hard to give a definitive answer on that because some sessions might be more higher threshold where we're looking for, it's going to be more intensive where we want guys producing more peak power and we know they're going to contend and deal with more stress at higher levels. Other sessions are going to be more extensive where we're going to get more reps in, but the actual force production and the stresses that they're going to be exposed to are a lot less. Um, so truthfully, it's very hard. I would say defer back to your textbook and see what phase of your phase of the, your, uh, the model your clients in and defer to that. It's always a good guide. Um, because the X's and O's, I mean, look, it's not a complete science. You've got to know your client. You've got to see how they're presenting on any given day. So I might have someone come in someday and I've got intensive five by eight hurdle jumps planned and we might be due to do 36 inch reactive jumps midway through their warm up or after their first set. I might just see that they're spending longer in the ground that I want to, or just the, the reactiveness isn't there. And intuitively I'm going to have to back them off. So I would say with jump training, it's not an exact science. You need to go in there with a framework to kind of guide the session. But 
be willing to make adjustments on the fly based on what you're seeing. Um, some days your guys could be really springy. They could be well prepared and their readiness to train could be through the roof. Other days they might not quite be there. So, um, yeah, go to the textbook, see what the, uh, the desired volume of jumps is, create your program, and then you've just got to manage that on the fly and understand that when we're programming for jumps, it's basically our temporary best guess as to what we think might be appropriate for our clients, but we might be willing to, or we might have to rather adjust on the fly based on just what they're presenting. So we have another one from Dennis um, that's actually about jump training. So again, back to you, Andy, here. Are you looking at floor jumps or plyometrics? And, and plyo, it doesn't have to be a super launch. I'm not sure I fully understand understand the question. Can you repeat that? So are you looking at floor jumps or plyometrics, basically? Floor jumps. Can I, any of you guys got an idea of what the definition of floor jumps is? Chris? The only thing I would say is that they all fall into the plyometric category. Maybe they have a unique way of talking about jumping okay. from the floor off of boxes. But to me, right. if you're accelerating, decelerating, it's the umbrella of plyos. Yeah, I or mean, reactive. Yeah, so and, and for plyometrics, I mean, not all jump training is plyometrics. So let's say I have someone starting from a seated position, they're sitting on a bench. They've got their angle set and they're about to jump on a box. Because there's no preload, it's basically starting strength. They're having to push. Muscles have to act. They've got to push. They've got to overcome inertia to get themselves off the floor. That would be considered a non-counter movement jump. These are great for working on explosive and starting strength. They're great teaching tools, but they wouldn't really fall under the plyometric continuum. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I don't really understand your question, so I know I'm not giving a great answer. Um, Dennis, if you're still listening, if you want to, you know, re-ask a question or maybe yeah. go in, um, to another, another, um, maybe a little deeper question that might help Andy. But uh, we have one, Chris, that I think would be good for you to answer. Um, even I believe we should improve balance at any age. Some experts believe it should be developed during childhood. They claim it is useless trying to improve it among adults. Any opinion? got a lot of opinions. I don't know how applicable they are. <laughs> <laughs> who, who are they? I, I, <laughs> I would say um, my, my relatively educated uh, guess or opinion on that would be, yes, I think we should always strive to improve <laughs> kind of really all the facets, all the buckets um, that we can at any age. I think <clears> – <throat> To some degree, you know, the, the science and the physiology is telling us that, yeah, as, as we age, um, you know, each, each decade potentially are opportunities for improvement in strength or power or conditioning or, you know, potentially some things like balance, they're, they're dropping off. Uh, but in personal experience or our personal practice, what I've seen and what I've heard that people have heard that information and then unfortunately just internalize that and think, well, that's it. I, I got, you know, I got nowhere to go here. I'm, I'm already in trouble. Or we'll use it then as, a, as an excuse or a reason not to engage in those activities. So I think there's, there's typically significant potential for people to actually make improvement at any age. I mean, with my clients in their 70s and 80s, still continuing to see balance improvement, still continuing to see power improvement, still continuing to see strength improvements over what they've done in decades past. Um, or, or worst case scenario, right? We slow down, um, we slow down the drop off process, right? We can 
we can um, level that off a little bit. So with balance, I think absolutely we should continue to work on those things as people age. Is it clear to me where the science is and you know how much can we improve, improve it as an adult? I don't know that I would be an expert to say, oh, absolutely this much or the drop off is this percentage. But uh, my personal experience again would tell me Yes, we absolutely should be training those things. Yes, my clients in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s are getting better at those things. So I'm going to keep doing it until you know either the science says I'm doing something wrong or my clients aren't improving. Perfect. Um, I know there's, um, we'll take one more question. Actually, I'll, I'll answer that one because it's about leg circuits. Sorry, I've got the sun that's hit me in, a, in an odd way. Um, but uh, first of all, for you guys that um, were asking about Dr. Michael Clark, Michael Clark is, or Dr. Clark is the, the, the man behind the OPT model. So he was actually the one that did the research and actually put the, you know, is the founder of the OPT model. So when we're talking about the NASM, uh, methodologies and, and looking at, um, you know, how to build a progressive and uh, a progressive and safe program anywhere from the CES all the way up to the PES. He was the, the, the brains behind it with a bunch of research to support it. And so, yes, he is a physical therapist. He's worked with the Phoenix Suns for multiple years. Um, he's now works with all kinds of professional athletes. And so we owe a lot of what we're talking about to him. Um, but the question that that came out was from David, and it says, how does that apply to clients who are not pro athletes? And basically, um, when you're talking about leg circuits, again, you want to think about the purpose. So always understand why you're programming something into an actual program. And that actually comes down to looking at, um, you know, looking at uh you know, who, who are you going to apply this with? And so it is a quote metabolic finisher and it does require a high demand. And so therefore you want to keep that in mind. And so you can do these very slow because remember it's as fast as you can do without compensation. And so it may just be more repetitive lunges. It may be as little slower, not as explosive leg circuit. I mean, a power step ups, as well as maybe it's not a tuck jump, but just a squat jump. So you guys can vary it up as much as you want. This was just one example of something that I do. And one of my favorites that I love to do with myself or have my clients do. And, you know, along with some rationales behind it. So before we um, end today, um, I think I've answered pretty much all the questions that have come in. Um, uh, do you have any uh, parting words there, Andy or Chris? Um, not in particular. I mean, just to touch on that whole, uh, the question on balance. I mean, I work with quite a few older older clients and I've seen great returns from, um, you know, appropriate balance training. So I'm not sure what the research says, but anecdotally from my experience, guys can improve their balance. It will improve their quality of life. And we know our body's ability to produce force is predetermined by our ability to aid balance and stabilize at the joint. So if that's the foundation, I think it's something that we need to continue to develop in order to make sure that the rest of our training is as um, impactful and as, and as beneficial as possible. So yeah, I'm not sure what the research says, but balance training gets a big thumbs up from me. How about you, Chris? I think, um, one of the things that's helpful for me to, to continue to consider 
uh, as I go through my career and, and thinking about the things that we've talked about today <clears throat> is, you know, we've talked about some of our specific favorites that we like to do with our clients for, for different reasons, um, whether value or, you know, injury reduction or difficulty to, um, to get hurt. But uh, I think uh, important for me to remember, important for us to remember that the, the things that we should implement with our clients and maybe, you know, going back to some of, of Andy's um, patterns or, or um, Wendy, some of the things that you've talked about. Well, who do you who do you do this stuff with? Do the things with your clients that you have the tools and the skill sets to do well. Um, there, there's there's going to be times um, in your career where you're more prepared to do things or you understand a greater depth. Um, of a pattern or a movement or a lift and feel like you can implement it well, uh, better, or with certain clients better. And I think it's important to honor and respect yourself and your clients as you go through that process. Um, over the course of my career, there's been times where I realized I do not understand this pattern well or this drill well. I need to can it because it's not working or I just can't do it in a way that I feel is valuable or, or safe. And so I need to stop doing it. I don't own it right now. And so I need to let that thing go. Um, so these patterns that we've talked about may be great for you. They may not. They may not be something that you feel like you've got a good handle on yet. And you've got some other tools in your toolbox that you feel like you can utilize extremely well. So use those things that you own well. And uh, and then obviously continue to add tools to the toolbox as you go. But don't be afraid to set some down for a while and then pick them back up later. Perfect. Beautiful. How about you, Marty? Do you want to bring us home and close us out? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So in conclusion, like I said, everything we talked about is still going to be anchored in the philosophies of NASM. We're going to be doing our assessments. We're always watching the five kinetic chain checkpoints. We're progressing people from moving well to moving well under load, then moving well at high speeds. And the research shows that this has been the best model ever put out there to improve performance and reduce injuries and carry that through a lifetime. So we just wanted to pick out a couple nuggets on certain things that we maybe thought were undervalued as well as when we say our favorites. So that way we could bring it to life. So I think that uh, we hope I learned a lot, but, you know, I, I thought it was a great conversation. And ironically, next week, we're going to then talk about maybe some things on the opposite end of this with these same two fabulous gentlemen that uh, maybe we think could be either considered overrated or something that we just want to pay more attention to that uh, we think that people maybe don't execute the exact way we'd want or maybe we can give a little better uh, solution to that so just a little tease for what could be coming next week so wendy as always it's a pleasure chris and andy knocked it out of the park can't wait to see what we come up with next <laughs> thank you guys it's thank been you. fun <laughs>